You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about capitalism and the ecological crisis. We'll be discussing a new piece that was just published in With Sober Senses on the topic. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about capitalism and the ecological crisis. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take about 10 minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on January 5th. It is the day before the anniversary of January 6th, the one-year anniversary of Trump's failed coup attempt against the U.S. government. There's been a lot of talk in the media about the meaning of that day, uh, what's changed in America since then, uh, what Americans think about that day. And there have been a flurry of polls polling the American public to see what their views are of January 6th, one year later, of the election, one year later, of American democracy, one year later. And we're going to review some of the evidence from those polls and draw some conclusions from them. There was an Axios Momentive poll that came out today, I guess, January 5th. There was a Washington Post, University of Maryland poll, an ABC Ipsos poll, and a CBS poll. As can be expected, there are huge differences between Democrats and Republicans in all these polls. One poll found that very large majorities of Democrats and independents, but only minority of Republicans, agreed that the 2020 elections were free of fraud. Another found that three-fourths of the overall public, but less than half of Republicans, agreed that the Capitol insurrectionists were threatening democracy rather than protecting it. And a third poll found that four-fifths of Democrats, but only one-third of Republicans, strongly disapprove of the insurrection. But Andrew, you've been looking at these polls uh, probably more closely than me, so what are your big takeaways? Yeah, so to me, the, the, the thing that stuck out was how isolated the Republican sentiment is in most of these polls. That's unusual. I mean, uh, Heather Digby Parton, writing in Salon, called attention to this and said, this is unusual. And she's completely right. I mean, generally, when I see a poll and I see that like 80% of Democrats feel one way, 20% of Republicans feel the other way, I can, within a couple of points, tell you how the independents are going to shake out because it's going to be the average between those two. 80 plus 20, 100, divide by 250. So the, the independents would be right smack there in the middle. That's not what happened this time. And it, that's just extremely un, unusual. I mean, the reason it generally goes half and half is that there aren't that many true independents in the country. You ask the independents, well, who do you lean toward? Most of them, you can get that they lean either Democrat or, or, or Republican. And so they just don't want to be said to be a party hack kind of person. So they call themselves independents. But 
these polls took a, a broad view of things and they didn't try to separate them into are you more Democrat or more re- Republican leaning. So you get a big chunk of the, the populace saying, I'm an independent, a third, 35% and, and up. And that's why in general, you're going to have the independents kind of like splitting the difference because more or less half of them are close to half of them are actually Democrats and half of them are basically Republicans. Okay. So it, it stands to reason generally that the independents are going to be smack there in the middle and that that's going to be kind of the center of gravity of the entire poll, but it did not turn out that way in these polls. The Republicans are just isolated. They, they've got their own strong views, and they're just on question after question after question, huge divergence between Democrats and independents on the one hand and Republicans on the other hand. And the, the Republicans are just isolated. Their, their sentiments are really isolated in these polls. And what that then seems to indicate is really a, a split within the Republican population, since about half of these independents are actually Republican adjacent. What this indicates is that these Republican adjacent independents are actually not buying the stop the steal patriot protest at the Capitol that was nonviolent and that was really Antifa in disguise. They're, they're not. They're not buying any of that stuff. I think the only natural way to interpret these numbers is that the real hardcore Trumpite base, you know, the people who go, yeah, I am Republican Party person, they're spouting the line, but a lot of the Republican adjacent people are not. We've talked before in the podcast about how in reading polling of the Trumpite base, when they say they believe X, Y, or Z crazy thing in a poll, you can't just take that on fa- at face value because sometimes you answer a poll purely j- just because you think answering yes or no is the correct perspective to support the partis- partisan position that you have, right? So yeah, you ask a Republican, like, how's the economy going when Trump's president? They say yes. The day after Biden's elected, they say the economy is doing horribly, right? So, so what do you think that sort of dynamic plays into the, you know, a lot of the poll, a lot of the question in the polls were things like, was the January 6th like uh, an insurrection or a protest? They asked whether it was an insurrection trying to overthrow the government, patriotism, defending freedom, were the people who forced their way into the Capitol typical of most Trump supporters? Were they Trump supporters but not typical? Right. Or were they so left-leaning people's answers groups? to this don't necessarily reflect like their actual view of the truth. They might just reflect what they want to project to advance their political position. There are these things are like litmus tests of what, how Trumpy you are, right? And that's why yeah, the maybe the independents aren't you know answer differently than the Trump base. Uh, yeah, that that's something. I mean, I don't know that to be the case, and, and in fact, I don't even know that my hypothesis. But it has to be the case that a lot of these people who say they're independent are actually Republican adjacent. I mean, that has to be the case. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it stands to reason what you're saying is true, but it, it may well be true that they they have less of a need to be performatively partisan in their responses. You know, less of, less of a felt need. 
The basic point is when people say they believe something, it's not like when a philosopher says they believe it, that it's a proposition and they're judging the truth value of it. They're telling you who they are. Amanda Marcotte had a, had a piece on all of these polls, and she reiterated this for the umpteenth time a day or two ago, saying when they say that they believe it, no, they don't believe it. And, and this is important because it tells us that fact-checking and going out there with the facts isn't going to change minds because that, that's not what this is about when people say they believe it. They're saying, this is who I am. And so if you want to change people, you have to change who these people are. And the only way I know how to change who the, uh, the Trumpite base is is by just like defeating Trumpism. And uh, at, at some point, they're going the to be The Huffington Post approached Congress people who had voted to not certify Joe Biden's election victory a year ago. Uh, in back in December, a month ago, and asked them if they regret their decision. They also asked them questions like, is Joe Biden the Ill legitimate president of the United States? And the vast majority of them just refused to comment or answer in, in any way. Right. That's the new line coming out from the Republican Party. You know, don't say anything. Duck the questions. This seems to have been a factor in getting Trump to cancel his counter-programming uh, for tomorrow. And there's all this speculation about why he canceled. Maybe it was the networks were not going to cover his counter-programming and all of this. But one hypothesis is that at least part of this has to do with the Republicans leaning on him and saying, look, any mention of January 6th is bad for us, which is obviously the case given the... It, there's a strong majority sentiment, which is, I would say, pro-truth on all of these questions in the, in, in the country. You would, you would want 100%, right, but realistically upwards of 80%, to people to say it was a fascist insurrection led by fascists to try to overthrow the government uh, engineered by Trump. You don't you don't get that, but but we're getting two thirds or, or so, seventy uh, percent of the population saying it. So it, this is this is not a winning thing for them to talk about it at all. And so it, it looks like they're saying you're not going to gain anything by this counter-programming. I mean, that's one thing that we see as well, despite more than a year of their stuff about election fraud and all of this. Uh, public opinion has hardly moved in, in, in the last year on all of these questions. I, well, you know, in the past 11 months, right? So they, they polled people uh, right after the insurrection. They're polling them now. Pretty much no, no change in, in how people uh, answer these questions. Well, that is all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, our discussion of capitalism and the ecological crisis. On today's episode of uh, Radio Free Humanity, we're going to be discussing an article published in With Sober Senses, Marxist Humanist Perspective on Capitalism and Ecological Crisis. This statement was adopted by MHI as one of its perspectives for this year. Uh, at its recent annual conference, and the main author of the statement is none other than Brendan Cooney, uh, co-host with me. So I'll be interviewing Brendan, essentially, and we'll be talking about this new Marxist-Humanist perspective on capitalism and ecological crisis. So, Brendan, um, what is the, the statement about? What's the, the gist? Well, you know, humans have been on this planet for 300,000 years or something like that, uh, but it's only really in the past few hundred years or even the past hundred years that 
human activity has threatened uh, the existence of civilization, of huge amounts of life on Earth. So obviously there's something very unique about this current moment. There's something very unique about the way human activity is organized today that is so massively, dangerously destructive to life on Earth. So this piece is exploring to what extent um, the capitalist mode of production as a unique mode of production uh, is responsible for this incredible destructiveness. Clearly, there must be something unique about the capitalist mode of production such that we find ourselves staring down these dangerous existential questions like, can we survive as a species? Can life, the only life we know about in the universe, can it survive uh, this mode of production? Maybe if we were to understand and really come to terms with what specifically about capitalism is so destructive, we might stand a chance of saving ourselves, saving life on the planet, saving life as we know it in the universe from this mode of production. The central argument in this paper is that capitalism's insatiable um, drive to expand uh, the realm of material production uh, beyond sustainable limits is, is the primary driver of environmental crises. That capitalism uh, has to be expansionary uh, and it has no way of regulating itself so that that expansion happens within any sustainable limits. Because this type of expansionary behavior is baked into the very essence of capitalist society, it's really hard for any type of politics to address the environmental crises that we face within this mode of production. And so the paper explores a little bit some of those um, inherent obstacles that make forward progress on the real fundamental environmental issues, makes that sort of progress impossible within capitalist society. So in the paper, there's a discussion of the way Marx uh, lays out the law of capitalist accumulation, the, the forces which drive capitalism to expand. Um, there's also a discussion of the degrowth literature, which is not a Marxist uh, literature, but which also understands to some extent um, the problem of growth as fundamental to the ecological crises. So there's a critique and discussion of some of the degrowth literature in the paper as well. Are you saying that the statement is addressed mainly to people who are convinced that there is a present uh, climate crisis or several of them all interlocking? So the piece is not trying to convince anybody of that. That's kind of taken as given. But it's addressing climate activists and people on the left who have a different uh, understanding of exactly what the problem is or problems are and why they're happening and what it would take to get us, you know, through this crisis. Yeah. It, it, one of the things that's important for people to work out, and I don't say this is explicitly worked out in the paper, but the idea of like overthrowing the capitalist mode of production is seems so daunting and huge that it seems like such a long-term goal, right? And the environmental crisis is so immediate and we need to do something about it immediately. Um, one could maybe be an eco-socialist and say, yeah, we want to get rid of capitalism, but I need to do, we want to do something about climate change today. Um, so my politics are about this, like surviving and not about the future goal, right? That's a fair enough way of wanting to orient oneself. However, we also just need to be clear theoretically about what it is about capitalism that makes make it so hard to address the ecological crisis within the constraints of capitalism. 
And once we've sort of established that, then then the politics maybe can flow from that understanding rather than just the politics flowing from a, an urge to just act immediately. Right. I mean, you say, look, overthrowing capitalism is, is a daunting task. Everybody's going to agree with you. I'd agree with you. But trying to solve the climate crisis without overthrowing capitalism, I mean, that's not only a daunting task. I mean, what's getting raised in the statement is, is it even achievable at all? And the answer is, I think, no, right? That's that's the answer that we're giving here. So, you know, I mean, there, that, that seems to be to be an issue of, of people just thinking that the capitalist mode of production is really neither here nor there. And it, it's not the climate crisis isn't really bound up with with capitalism at a elemental level. Whereas the statement, you know, you were arguing, you know, it is like, you know, from the ground up, this is about capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are these other currents of thought and, and political tendencies associated with them, as you were saying. And one of them is degrowth or post-growth. First of all, can you just explain what, what those t- terms mean and who are the kind of people associated with that thinking? I'm not an expert in the degrowth or post-growth literature, as it's sometimes called, but um, I did some reading and researching about that field and researching for this paper because it seemed that they were also talking about the insatiable growth in material production uh, that is happening in our capitalist society as a central cause of ecological crises today. So I thought it would be useful to look at the way they approach the problem of growth. The main writer I I read the most of and referenced the most in this paper was Jason Hickel. I think he's been somewhat influential in environmental movements, especially I know he has been very influential in the Extinction Rebellion group. You know, I think the strongest stuff that I've read from Hickel and others in that movement, uh, their discussion of the the great difficulty that capitalist growth imposes upon um, attempts to decarbonize production, that the rate of capitalist growth in our society is so fast that it's difficult to decarbonize production fast enough to compensate in the opposite direction. Um, But the the post-growth literature is really lacking when it comes to policy proposals for what to do about this. A lot of the proposals are seem very unrealistic, you know, things like abandoning GDP as a policy perspective or just changing paradigms in economics or just like regulation to limit the amount of uh, GDP growth some countries have. And But even more fundamentally, I realize in reading the literature that their understanding of like why capitalism and grows insatiably was really lacking because they are not understanding it as a unique mode of production that is driven forward by its own internal laws, but instead really seem to think that the various factors that lead growth to be so central to capitalist society were much less central factors. Things like economic ideas and you know policy perspectives or just particular institutional things that could be changed here and there, but not like understanding this growth as like a real central feature of capitalist production. Just to kind of summarize, you got some stuff about degrowth theory that you think is valuable, and you got a critique oriented to its politics and related to that a critique oriented to its economics. Yeah. What is it specifically that you say is valuable? 
Well, it's valuable to look at and consider because it's a field that is talking about capitalist growth and that growth being incompatible with human life on this planet. So since I think that a Marxist analysis of the environmental crises also should put growth, capitalist growth, that is at the forefront of the analysis of environmental crises, you know, we need to understand what that Marxist perspective is in relationship to other fields that are also talking about growth as a central problem. Not all people on the left are talking about growth as an issue um, in, in, in terms of the environmental movement. But the degrowth people are, so we need to understand what we're saying as it differentiates from what they're saying. At the same time, there's a potential for dialogue, for debate, for perhaps um, getting people who are adherents of degrowth to consider looking at things from the perspective that Marx does and not just sort of more an ahistorical concept of growth. There was a political critique of, of this uh, regulation and, and stuff as if you could have capitalism and regulate the problem into submission. And that's based on a real lack of understanding of what capitalism is. And that's the, the economic critique. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really important because, I mean, people can say, you know, I'm anti-capitalist and the problem is capitalism. But if they mean the problem is capitalist ideology, growth ideology of the people who happen to run capitalism at the moment, that's really different from saying there's something inherent in the guts of the way production is organized. And so we got this idea then of, of growth that you're saying, like, it's not just growth, it's capitalist growth. Okay, so maybe first of all, define what you mean by capitalist growth, and then like explain what it has to do with the ecological crisis. Well, capitalist growth is a growth of material production, primarily. Capitalists are driven by competition to have to invest profits in an expansion of production. And that means that they use up more resources and they pollute more, they burn more carbon, and the more the realm of material production expands, um, the more resources are degraded and the more carbon is released into the atmosphere and the more the oceans fill up with plastic. Uh, growth doesn't necessarily have to be of material things, right? Like, obviously, like, people sell services, but even services are have some material basis they happen in buildings they use resources to do anything from accounting to writing jingles right it's all like there's some degree of material production and and all of that so that's the basic i guess answer to what am i talking about when i'm talking about growth you know the growth is aimed just at making profits for the capitalist class it's not a growth of free time for people it's not a growth uh, necessarily of living standards of any particular social good it happens to be that gdp growth can and has sometimes historically raised living standards right for people but that's not the goal of capitalist growth that's like a byproduct and even within very wealthy capitalist societies we have like huge extremes of inequality you know, we often hear like, oh, you know, growth is good for everyone. We need growth because it rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. But at the same time, the growth of capitalist production tends to, tends to just reproduce the same inequalities of capitalist society just on an expanding scale. Yeah, I mean, if this rising tide that lifts all boats is a tsunami <laughs> and kills yeah, us all. Right. <laughs> I mean, that seems to yeah. be the appropriate yeah. analogy yeah. here. It, it, this is like that craziness where you pit the environment against the economy as if, or like, like with COVID, they're pitting 
health against the economy. And that goes to the, the issue of like what you're saying, of what is it that you're growing? Why are you growing? And it's not for human beings. I mean, that's just like, it's really hard, I think, for people to see that a system that produces so many consumer goods and services is just not about that. That's not the goal of any of the activity. Yeah, I mean, we hear this all the time in the debate about development and the underdeveloped world. And we're like given this false choice where, you know, we can only lift the masses of underdeveloped countries out of poverty if they're developed along a capitalist path and everyone has like cars and air conditioners. But, you know, if all of India and Africa and China had cars and air conditioners, we'd the planet would be unlivable. So this, it's not really a real. It's not a real choice. So this capitalist growth, um, and you're saying that there's uh, within the degrowth literature, um, people like Jason Hickel, they recognize the link between capitalism and growth, but you're saying they don't really understand why and how growth is connected to capitalism. Exactly what the connection is. So let's. Try to break it down. Why does capitalism grow? As you pointed out, they certainly don't do it because of some subjective motivations. Yeah, if capitalism had a psychological diagnosis as a system, it might be like antisocial personality disorder. But capitalists themselves don't necessarily have to be psychopaths or have antisocial personality disorder for the system to act in that way. You know, Marx treats people as personifications of economic categories. For a reason, because he sees the economic categories as, it doesn't mean people as individuals are reducible to their economic categories, but as economic actors, they are, are compelled to act in ways that work within the logic of the system that they're working within. And one thing that is inherent to the behavior of capitalists uh, is that they're competing with each other, and also that they are constantly expanding the realm of their production. They start with money, they have to invest that money and production to make a profit, and they take that profit, and they reinvest it in expanding production. They, d- they don't really have the choice not to expand production. If they were to hold on to their profits and just spend them on yachts and luxury items and not grow the field of material production, they would be destroyed in the battle of competition. Through competition, capitalists are compelled to constantly revolutionize the means of production, the cheapened commodities, in order to compete with each other. And that cheaping of commodities means that they produce end up producing more commodities and that they also use more resources and both in the, the constant investment in machinery, but also in the investment of more inputs because they're now producing more commodities. As labor becomes more productive, as, as machines allow a worker to produce 10 widgets where they used to produce five, but now you need the material inputs of 10 widgets rather than five per hour. So there's a greater, greater demand on resources and on energy consumption. Let's try to break this down further because you used a lot of uh, terms and there's a lot of different pieces here. And what you've said is that there's some compulsion coming from competition that requires that capitalists try to make their businesses grow and the successful ones do. Why? What is it about competition that makes the growth imperative? Well, capitalists compete by cheapening their commodities and underselling each other or outselling each other. Um, a capitalist that doesn't invest in expanding the scale of production um, and increasing the efficiency of labor 
in order to cheapen commodities won't survive the battle of competition. Okay, so so competition to you know win the battle of competition or survive in the battle of competition, you can't like produce a too high a cost. You know, because then you'd have to sell it to high cost and nobody would buy. So you have to try to cheapen the cost of producing those commodities so you can sell them at a reasonable price. But what does that have to do with growth? What's the connection between the need to grow and the need to produce cheap commodities? Well, the larger your scale of production is, the more efficient you're using your resources and the cheaper you can make commodities. This is referring to economies of scale, right? So there's an inherent advantage to having a larger scale of production when you're competing with other firms. You have less production costs per unit of output, and that allows you to be more competitive than a smaller firm that has a higher uh, per unit production cost. Right, so I mean, an example would be if you're producing steel, let's say, and you were to have like a little mom and pop steel operation, you wouldn't be producing steel efficiently and therefore you wouldn't be producing it cheaply, right? So to be able to survive as a steel business, you can't be a mom and pop steel operation. You gotta be a big, you know, steel operation. So you can drive the cost down so the buyers can buy your your steel at a reasonable price instead of at triple that price because it costs you so much because you're inefficient. Yeah, this is what economists call uh, economies of scale. So the the capitalists have to compete because they're in a competitive environment. To compete successfully, they have to produce cheaply. And to produce cheaply, they got to be big. I mean, that doesn't apply to everything. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't want to say that, you know, the economies of scale work with, like, nail salons, right? You know, you don't need mega nail salons. You need, yeah. like, you know, little boutique nail salons, you know, in, in, in the local neighborhood. But people's nails are, are people's nails, and steel is steel, and auto is auto, and oil extraction is oil extraction. You know, there, mm-hmm. there, there, are, there are the kind of things that you're talking about. It's not universal, but, it, it, yeah, it's a very, very big deal economies of scale. And when we're talking about destructive capitalist growth and an ecological crisis, we're talking about these big firms that are compelled to grow uh, through economies of scale. You know, nail salons are not driving the climate crisis. (laughs) No, that's absolutely correct, yeah. And you, you were talking about capitalists being personifications of capital. And it's not like them personally to blame and, and having anti-social personalities disorder as individuals, as the system. Take, take us through it. What would happen if you, you had capitalists who say, well, look, you know, we got a climate crisis here. Let's, let's just cool it with the growth and let, let's just produce at a sustainable level. Okay, so like the CEO of Exxon or some steel plant reads a Jason Hickel book and has some aha moment and decides we're just going to stay at the same level of material output. We're not going to invest in expanding our scale of production or producing more efficiently. Um, They start to lose the battle of competition and the board fires the CEO because, you know, investors need to make returns on their investment. Yeah. Or if the board doesn't want to do that, you get people in the financial industry and they engineer, you know, shareholder takeover, you know, and you get a new board and a new CEO. Yeah. Or they go out of business and they get bought by 
a company that will do what the previous company couldn't do. So is there any way out? I mean, I don't see a way out of this logic within the realm of capitalist production. I mean, in the writings of the degrowth uh, theorists, uh, Hickel, etc., is there any discussion of this kind of problem? Not that I can see. Wow. It's, it's all sort of, they say things like, well, we'll have public ownership of firms so that the state can you know, control the amount of growth of production that happens. And they're going to have like, you know, get rid of planned obsolescence through some kind of regulation or warranties that are required by regulation so that firms don't have to produce as much output. That's the way things are framed. Wow. Is there any mention of Chernobyl? Well, because that was the USSR. That was a state-directed, state-owned system with one of the the, the worst nuclear disaster. I mean, as, as long as people think that changing the titles is a solution, they can't explain things like this, like Chernobyl. That, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's on my mind is if you people were correct that this would solve the problem, there wouldn't be Chernobyls. So why are there Chernobyls? Yeah, and, and even within like a capitalist state, um, state ownership of a firm doesn't mean that the firm um, is immune to competition, either nationally or internationally. It doesn't mean that the firm um, can't pursue profit-maximizing behavior, that the basic constraints of the law of value don't apply to the firm. I mean, all these things are still operable no matter who is running the firm. Yeah, or, or, or something like it. I mean, they didn't have like individual profit incentives to the same degree in the USSR, but the USSR was locked into a world historic struggle with Western capitalism for, for domination of, of the capitalist world. So they were competing in, in that way, and nuclear power was, was, was very important to them. So, wow, yeah. So people can throw around the term capitalism, but if people think that capitalism is, is like some system that's subject to the whims of the people who happen to be running the system, it's not the capitalism that you and I are talking about. It's it's some some something, but I it's a system of greedy people or something. I don't know. I don't know what they really mean. In a capitalist economy that doesn't grow, goes into recession or depression, so it's really impossible to impose a negative growth condition upon a capitalist society like, uh, you know, from above by the state um, and have that be politically palatable. It's going to be disastrous for the people that live in the country and it's not going to be sustainable in the long term. Right. I mean, if you're not giving people freedom and if you're not giving them, you know, meaningful lives, what's left? You give them goodies and goodies take resources to produce. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are 
faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Okay, so in this MHI statement that you're the main author of, Brendan, there is a discussion of what Marx called the uh, organic composition of capital, and in relationship to that, the carbon footprint. And the statement goes into the the evidence, uh, as well as the theory, but but the evidence that the increasing carbon footprint, the the growth of uh, greenhouse gas is not just a matter of consumption. And it doesn't even seem to be predominantly a problem driven by consumption. That's really counterintuitive to, I think, most everybody. I mean, it, it, it runs so counter to the way we've, we've grown up uh, thinking about this. Can you go into that? First of all, what is the organic composition of capital? And, and how is this related to, 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 to the carbon footprint? Yeah, I think this is like the one aspect in the paper that seems new. I hadn't really heard this point developed elsewhere, and I I would love to see us develop it more as an organization and sort of explore the ramifications of it. Usually when we're talking about solving the ecological crisis, there's some implication somewhere in the argument that consumption patterns will have to change, right? Probably most people can agree that a more sustainable society won't have like millionaires flying to the moon on their private rocket ships, space tourism. But, you know, also like a lot of the carbon footprint of the world is produced by just a, f- a few wealthy countries. And usually that those kind of facts are wielded in a way to imply that this carbon footprint is the result of the consumption habits of 
citizens of those countries. They that this carbon footprint is mostly like home heating costs and transportation costs, right? But Marx argues that the organic composition of capital is rising over time, and I'll get to that in a minute. And he also argues that that the part of the economy that produces means of production, what he calls Department One, is growing relative to the part of the economy that's producing means of consumption. And so I thought if that's the case, then it could be that there might be a big carbon footprint of the economy that's actually not reducible to the consumption habits of individuals, but it's just like the carbon footprint of capital's production, production for production's sake. If I can explain that Succinctly, it'll be a miracle, but... First of all, you say production for production's sake. You don't mean production for the hell of it. It's production of means of production that don't become means of production for consumer goods, but means of production that become means of production into additional means of production that become means inputs into even more production and, and so forth. This is a portion of output that does not uh, actually ever enter into uh, personal consumption. It could be like a steel plant makes oil rigs, and the oil rigs sell the oil to the steel plant to make more oil rigs. And the two firms are producing for each other, and some steel ends up at consumer products, but part of the economic activity is just capitalist firms producing back and forth for each other, and it's not reducible to consumer goods. Right. They do engage in some consumer production, but the point is not every bit of the production ends up ultimately as consumer goods. I mean, my favorite example is uh, you mine iron that gets used to produce steel, and the steel is used to produce excavation equipment, and the excavation equipment is used to mine more iron, and so forth and so on in that kind of circle. Uh, and as they get bigger, you get more and more of that. So an increasing share of total production is production of means of production to produce more means of production rather than more consumer goods. So Marx has this argument that not only is this production for production's sake a part of a capitalist economy, but that that type of production, the, ex the expansion of Department 1, happens faster than the expansion of Department 2, that actually for like developing economies, that means of production have to grow um, at the expense of the production of means of consumption. So the consumers actually take a hit in order for more investment to flow into the expansion of means of production. Anyway, so I had the suspicion that if Department 1 is increasing relative to Department 2, that that would mean that the carbon footprint of Department 1 is increasing relative to Department 2. And it seems from the data that I was able to find um, that that is the case, um, that it's actually surprisingly large, the carbon footprint of this production for production's sake. I mean, for one, already the production of means of production is more carbon intensive than other forms of production, but that type of, of production is growing faster than other types of production and its carbon footprint is growing faster. I think it's rather interesting because, like, you know, there are these input-output relations. Like, you know, you, you produce petroleum, and that gets used to produce gasoline, and a lot of gasoline ends up as a, you know, consumption product. You know, people put it in their, their tanks, right, and they, and, and they drive, but not all of it. And so this, the study that you found is, uh, it seems to me a pretty, a pretty remarkable study 
where taking into account all the input-output relations, the, the author says the carbon footprint of investment is growing uh, much, much faster than the carbon footprint of, of consumption. I'll just quote from, the, from what, what we wrote. Recent empirical data backs this up. Between 1995 and 2015, the carbon footprint of consumption rose by 64%. But the carbon footprint of investment, which is what we were just referring to as production for production's sake, the carbon footprint of investment rose by 170%, so more than two and a half times as rapidly. In other words, the greenhouse gases created by capital formation are increasing much more rapidly than the greenhouse gases created by consumption. Yeah, and a lot of that growth, a lot of that growth seems to be connected to the growth of the China's economy which means that they started, mid-90s were not a major productive power yet, past quarter century they've become so. They engaged in a massive program of industrialization and, you know, economic advancement. And it looks like they did so, and, you know, nobody uh, would challenge this. They did so in an environmentally, you know, destructive way. But the point is they are building up their productive capacity. They're not producing for consumption so much as producing for production to build up their production. You can't put the whole thing on China, but I looked at the, this, 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 this author's figures and it seems to be, he, he breaks it down by, by region and country and so forth. A lot of it, it seems to be connected with the, the growth of, of the Chinese economy. Well, I find that just fascinating and I'm surprised that it's not something that's talked about more in the environmental literature because it clearly points to capitalist production as the the real driver of environmental crises and not just like consumer habits yeah i mean it's it runs counter to like everything we're told you know we're told we're the problem it's our consumption to the extent that production is a problem it's because they're producing to meet our needs right since when are they producing to meet our needs and uh, <laughs> What what we, we we need is conservation efforts. We need recycling and yeah. Turn down the thermostat. Turn off the lights. Take short showers. Don't ride on airplanes. But this but this puts it in a very different perspective. So so the the one thing that people might still be unclear about what exactly is the relationship between Marx's. Uh, claim that the organic composition of capital increases. I mean, it's an empirical fact as well. What's the relationship between the rising organic composition of capital and this production for production's sake or more means of production for the sake of means of production rather than for consumption? Yeah, I don't think I ever got around to defining organic composition of capital. Organic composition of capital is the ratio of investment between the investment in non-labor inputs and labor inputs. A rising organic composition of capital means capitalists are investing more of their money in the purchasing of uh, non-labor inputs. That could be raw materials or partially finished materials, and they're investing less in labor. As labor becomes more efficient, and it can produce more, you know, widgets in an hour, then you need more material inputs into the labor process. So that raises the organic composition of capital. And also as capitalists are continuing to invest in more machinery in order to revolutionize the means of production and to further increase the efficiency of labor, they have to constantly be building 
more machines and newer machines and investing in that technology. And that also raises the organic composition of capital. And the increasing amount of activity that's taken up by Department 1, that of producing the means of production, is uh, driven by those same economic laws or forces that are driving the organic composition of capital. So this this MHI statement is meant for climate activists and for the left people who understand that there is a real crisis and it's a, it's a question of why is there a crisis and what it's going to take to get us beyond that and that's where we think that there's a lot of problems in standard understandings and you know we've talked somewhat about the uh, the degrowth literature but then there's a whole section of, of this statement about people thinking that we have the answers to the climate crisis they're technological and all we need to do is stop talking and do it uh, w- one section of the statement is quote we have the answers now we need to stop talking uh, and do it and you know interestingly the statement begins with a quote from uh, Greta Thunberg, and she has a knack for statements that cut through the bullshit. What we're trying to do here is uh, additionally cut through bullshit. So it's very appreciative of Greta Thunberg, the statement is. But then when it comes to this idea of that we have all the answers, there's a criticism of something she said in a 2018 TED Talk. She said, we already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change. What's the problem with that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people feel that way, right? It's implicit in a lot of the a lot of the environmental movement. There's just a political problem of pressuring leaders to adopt the correct solutions. But a lot of what they mean by these, we have all the facts and solutions. By that, I, th- I think that they mean that we have like we have technology. We have the scientific knowledge to produce things with green technology. Is what they mean by that. And we just need the political will to put some massive project into plan to convert production to green production. But I think that this this assumption that we have all the answers is ignorant to the fact that a lot of people don't have all the answers. If the problem is capitalist production and not just the technologies that capitalism uses, but it's the mode of production itself, then we really don't have all the answers. If capitalism just grows at this completely explosively destructive pace without any coordination and is just this this like explosively destructive juggernaut of growth just having some like enlightened political parties that want to introduce like green technologies is not really addressing the central problem it's very understandable that people would be so focused on sustainable technology itself as a solution since um for one thing, in a capitalist society, we kind of assume technology will solve all of our problems. But also, like, clearly we do need different ways of producing energy and different modes of transportation and different types of te- technology to survive as a species because we don't have sustainable production technology right now. But I think it leaves out the big question, uh, which is what to do about capitalist growth. And we discussed this earlier, and we really like the debate about green capitalism comes down to a discussion of like how fast we can decouple GDP growth from carbon emissions. And that problem is just, it's very difficult to to project like feasible decoupling strategies given the 
tendencies of GDP to grow at a certain rates? You know, it's not just like the, there's some baked in tendency of GDP to grow at, at certain rates. I mean, the, the, the problem is you got, let's say, China. China is, is trying to catch up with and outdistance the other capitalist countries, and they're trying to do it very quickly. There's no blueprint for here, we're going to grow in a way that's sustainable. And of course, you can't even have that in a world system where you got different national competing capitals. So they're, they're just trying to grow right now and, you know, like, damn the consequences. No, no, nobody's minding the store. This is the anarchic nature of capitalism. Nobody is there minding the store. You can have technological solutions, but who's going to bell the cat? Nobody. You're not saying that we don't have the technological solutions. Accept the science and you accept that, that, that there are these technologies. And so you're saying to these people, yeah, you guys are right that the technology is potentially there and the science is there and that's all good. But what do we need? They, they, these people say, well, we need more enlightened or political leadership. And you're saying, no, that's not really the issue because... Because it doesn't really address the issues of capitalist accumulation as a the central problem that's driving ecological crises in our society. Right. So we're back to the same problem once again. Yeah. I even attempted to talk a little bit about the Green New Deal as well in the paper because, you know, the Green New Deal, is it's usually pitched in the sense that it's going to help add to economic expansion, right? And it's obviously an allusion to the New Deal, which economic populists often claim was responsible for the post-war economic boom. Whether or not that's true is a different question. But economic activity in the U.S. after World War II was impressive and was also like really environmentally destructive. So I don't think that the conception of like, okay, we're going to like green technologies, we're going to do this Green New Deal, it's going to lead to this big economic expansion. I don't think that really adequately uh, addresses this issue of just that economic growth itself in a capitalist society is tied to environmental degradation. One thing I think people might be having trouble with when they're, they're listening to you and me speak about this or when they, they read this statement is what are we saying is possible? What are we saying isn't possible? What are we saying the problem is? Because most people just don't have uppermost in their mind that the fundamental problem is the capitalist mode of production and therefore the fundamental solution has to do with getting rid of the capitalist mode of production. People hear things and that's, that sounds like rhetoric to them and they set it aside and then they try to say, well, like, you know, you're not being clear. Is the solution technology? Is the solution not technology? You know, are, are you saying that we have to give up on growth? You know, and that, that basically that means that the people in the less developed countries are going to remain poor forever. You know, is that what you're saying is, is the problem growth? You know, are you against growth? Are you, are, you, are you saying that we can't solve these problems by means of science and technology? How can we make this like maximally clear to people what we're not saying as well as what, what we are saying? <laughs> well, I think it's that no strategy for combating the climate crisis is going to be adequate unless it's addressing the elephant in the room, which is the capitalist mode of production. So, yes, we need green technologies. Yes, we need to find a way to uh, expand the realm of material production in sustainable ways that benefit 
all of the world, not just certain countries. Um, but those are like impossible things to achieve within the system that we have right now, the capitalist system that we have right now. I think that's basically it. What we need to do is get rid of the elephant in the room. Without the elephant in the room, we'd be, we'd be okay. And I, I think that the problem is that when we say this and everything we, we say flows from this and then people discount that major piece because they're looking for quick fixes or something politically palatable or, or whatever, then what we say sounds like gibberish and sounds like double talk and sounds inconsistent. Because the, the core of it is everything you guys are saying needs to be done cannot be done within this mode of production, within this system. It can be done, but not within this system. So if you want it to be done, we have to get rid of this system. Don't ignore that. Don't set it aside. Don't think that what it means is we need more enlightened people with different priorities and power in charge of the system. No, no, no. We mean it literally. We need a different system. I think we just have to keep repeating that, repeating that, and repeating that. And, I mean, just like certain people are recognizing that, that racism is a system, people need to realize that capitalism is a system. Just like racism does not depend on certain people getting rid of it, certain people acting in, you know, more woke ways, you know, although that would help. The capitalist system does not depend on the ill will or the goodwill of of the the personifications who happen to be running at a a moment in time. This is what we say that's controversial because it's so controversial. It doesn't help anybody's political fortunes. People discount it, and therefore what we say sounds sounds ridiculous. But it's not really, really ridiculous at all. It, it's, it's really getting to the heart of the matter that everybody else seems to either not be really aware of or to be brushing under the table or sticking underneath the elephant <laughs> or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, the elephant's sitting on them, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah. well, you know. Well, let's just ignore the elephant and let's 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 try to like f- fix yeah, it, no. the elephant. <laughs> Whatever the metaphor is, the endless yeah. the metaphor that keeps giving. It, I, I just have a, 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 this this observation, uh, something that that comes to my mind again and again when Marx starts to talk about machinery in Capital. He talks about John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill just being astonished, looking at the history of, you know, technological innovation up to his time and saying, all of these innovations, all of these inventions, none of them ever seem to have lightened labor to any, you know, appreciable extent ever. And Marx is like, yeah, dude, that's not the point of them. They don't do it because that's not the point. The point of these things is to extract surplus value to create, you know, more profit. And it's just the same way with the, the technologies, the green technologies, all, all kinds of the technologies. The reason that there is no technological solution to these problems within capitalism is that's not the way technology works within capitalism. The technologies that actually are adopted are those that expand capital. It's, it's kind of like that naivete of, of your social democrats or your liberals, you know, in that English 19th century John Stuart Mill sense. I mean, they're kind of astonished that their classless understandings of how things could work and should work don't work. And it's like, yeah, 
the, the reason you're astonished is it's, you're not oppressively aware that we're not in a classless environment. You're not oppressively aware that the class nature of the mode of production is conditioning everything. I don't know, it's not an exact analogy, but it, it, it seems to me the same kind of thing when, when people are like, well, how come, how come it's, this isn't working? It's, it's not working because you live in a society where it's not meant to work that way. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 